You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. The Rewilding Earth Podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia and Catula, the Whedon Foundation, and listeners like you. If you love the work Rewilding is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast while you're there. Camilla Fox is the founder and executive director of Project Coyote, a national nonprofit organization that promotes compassionate conservation and coexistence between people and wildlife through education, science, and advocacy. With over 20 years of experience working on behalf of wildlife and wildlands and a master's degree in wildlife ecology, policy, and conservation, Camilla's work has been featured in the New York Times, the BBC, NPR, Orion, National Geographic, and Mother Jones. Camilla has authored more than 70 publications and is co-author of two books, Coyotes in Our Mist and Call of the Wild. She also co-produced the companion award-winning documentary Call of the Wild, The Truth Behind Trapping, and she's director and producer of The Killing Games, Wildlife in the Crosshairs, a documentary film released in 2017 with the aim of ending wildlife killing contests in the U.S. Camilla, thanks for being with us today on Rewilding Earth Podcast. Let's start out with giving everybody a brief history of Project Coyote. How did it start and how has it grown? It seems to be a very healthy organization. Sure. Well, first off, pleasure to be on this program. Um, I love Rewilding Institute. Um, So yeah, Project Coyote, I, I started the organization 10 years ago in 2008. And um, I had worked in both uh, environmental protection and animal protection for 20-something years before that, and I really saw a need and a niche for an organization that would be a voice for the most maligned, misunderstood, and persecuted predators in North America. Um, so that was really the idea behind it, uh, to be a voice for them and also to provide solutions to both rural and urban communities about how we can better coexist with these animals. And so in 2008, I had actually just finished um, my master's degree um, with Dave Parsons. uh, And Dave is, um, I know, associated with Rewilding Institute as well. Um, He was my advisor at Prescott. And um, he became one of the sort of founding science advisory board members for Project Coyote back in 2008. And so, yeah, we've been going strong ever since. And we're national based in uh, Northern California. We are a nonprofit. Uh, we are expanding as well. Yes, I. when you get on your site, projectcoyote.org, for everyone listening, you can go check it out. I mean, it, this really smacks you in the face. You've got a message from Peter Coyote, who's on your advisory board, but I see Brian May from one of my favorite bands of all time. We are expanding, and I think definitely Peter Coyote and Brian May um, as ambassadors uh, are helping us um, reach uh, bigger venues. Brian actually reached out to us several years ago, and and uh, I didn't even know it was Brian May who was reaching out to us. It was via email, and his message basically said, "So respect the work that you're doing for the underdog, uh, for the ones that are most persecuted and and maligned." And he, most people don't know, is not only an astrophysicist, but he started a group um, himself in uh, in England. Um, Save Me Trust, and they're protecting badgers and foxes and some of the underdogs of England. So he very much appreciates the work that we do for those animals that are often considered vermin and nuisance animals in our country. 
Um, so we've, we've greatly appreciated his voice and uh, him coming on board as a Project Coyote ambassador. Wow. I like him so much even more than before now. That's so cool. I love that. I was going to ask you, like, how do you just run into these guys? And I imagine that you maybe had a friend of a friend of a friend or something like that, and you reached out, but he reached out to you. He reached out to us, and I have saved the email. It was a very short email, and it just it said something akin to really appreciate the work of Project Coyote and the fact that you are helping the underdogs. Wow. And it was it was timed bri d r i, and um, I I had no idea at the time, so I just shared it with some of our folks internally and said, you know, respond if you think appropriate. And they looked up and saw his email and and realized it was Brian May, and then that started a, a whole conversation between the two of us. Um, and then I finally got to meet him in Hollywood, and we did a filmed interview together, uh, which can be seen on our website under his. Um, on the About Us page under his name as Project Coyote Ambassador. <clears throat> and in that, that interview, we talk about the work that he's doing for um, the underdogs of England and then our work, particularly focused on our work around ending wildlife killing contests. Um, and that particular campaign, I think, has really resonated with him because, of course, in England, they have uh, tried to stop the hunting of foxes um, and similar kind of exploits. Well, let's get into that because it's the most obvious and glaring thing on the front page of your site right now. And I've been seeing it. I mean, I know Rewilding ran at least a couple of alerts this year on Killing Games. Tell us a little bit about that and how that came about. Sure. So Killing Games, uh, full title is Killing Games, Wildlife in the Crosshairs. And that's a documentary film that Project Coyote produced in 2017. Uh, We have a 30-minute version and a 10-minute version. And... um, We produced it because we had led a successful effort in California to close the loopholes on wildlife killing contests, specifically contests targeting non-game and fur-bearing animals. This includes coyotes, foxes, bobcats, raccoons, among other species. Back in, I think it was 2012, I learned from a Project Coyote supporter up in Modoc County, which is up in the uh, northeastern corner of California, that a big coyote killing contest was going to take place um, uh, in February. And we did some research and learned that this uh, contest was going to take place in about four counties in Northern California. And at the time, this was an area where OR7, also known as Journey, uh, a gray wolf who had dispersed down from Oregon, was uh, had been seen and documented and was traversing the landscape up in this this whole large territory of northern california so we decided to appeal to the california fish and game commission um, to end this contest uh, and, and we were focusing on the threat to a listed species the gray wolves at the time um, listed as a, a federally endangered species and we also appealed to the commission that killing contests targeting coyotes are uh, ethically and ecologically um, indefensible. We then started a whole campaign that ended up being about an 18-month campaign that was very grassroots focused. And we formally petitioned the Fish and Game Commission to end the practice, pointing out that gray wolves were also threatened from um, coyote hunters out uh, hunting day and night for their quarry. And ultimately, after getting many organizations involved, and getting thousands of people writing into the commission and showing up at commission hearings, testifying, 
we finally uh, got the majority vote to end the practice. That was in December of 2014. And I should mention that even before that, there was a killing contest um, in El Dorado County that was taking place at night, uh, targeting coyotes and, as I recall, bobcats and foxes as well. And one of the Department of Fish and Wildlife officers at the time was shot um, by one of the contestant participants, um, ostensibly by accident uh, at night. And he was rushed to ER. It was actually on Valentine's Day. And uh, thankfully, he survived. But it demonstrated just how very dangerous these killing contests are. And so, you know, obviously, that was something that the commission and the department came to know. And we, of course, linked it in the media and everything to these deadly killing contests. And so that helped our campaign. And ultimately, we became the first state in the nation to ban the practice. And then for us, for Project Coyote, that led to a lot more research um, to see how prevalent this practice is uh, beyond California. And what we learned is that these contests are taking place all over, not just the West, but on the East in Pennsylvania, Vermont, New Hampshire, Massachusetts. And it's not just, as I mentioned, it's not just coyotes that are targeted. Uh, we have foxes, bobcats, um, crows, ravens, marmots, prairie dogs, even wolves in states like Idaho. What this um, led to with the film is we had um, organizations and individuals who said, how did you do it in California? How did you ultimately enact this campaign and successful fight to end the practice? And I personally have seen the power of film. I had worked before on a, <clears throat> another film called Cull of the Wild, The Truth Behind Trapping, that largely focused on uh, trapping of fur animals for the international fur trade. And of course, some of your listeners will have seen movies like The Cove and Blackfish, which are very powerful documentaries that mm -hmm. really had significant impacts on campaigns. And so we decided to put the time and resources and money into another documentary. And Killing Games came out in 2017. And I'll share as well that since that time, we have formed a national coalition specifically focused to end wildlife killing contests. And we founded that uh, coalition with the Humane Society of the United States. And we now have uh, 30 plus national and state organizations that are part of that coalition. And our film, uh, Killing Games, is a major uh, campaign tool that the coalition is using to raise public awareness. And I'd say that's the biggest thing that we're up against, is that when I give presentations across the country on this issue, and I talk to legislators, and I talk to state wildlife agency commissioners and staff, most people have no idea that this is going on. These species that are targeted have really no protections by our state wildlife agencies. They are fair game and their classification is reflective of this. Often they are classified as non-game, which basically means they're not really important to us. Um, sometimes they're even classified as, as nuisance. So that's really what the bigger, the bigger issue is here is these state wildlife agencies are not protecting these species. And so they're not even monitoring these killing contests that are happening. And from our experience in California and now in several other states, our state wildlife agency didn't even know where these contests are happening, what species are, are targeted, how many are being killed. So we had to bring this information and this data, these data to our state wildlife agencies. And 
thankfully, as in California at the time, Mike Sutton was our president of our Fish and Game Commission. Um, he was shocked and he became our leader in our effort in California. And now he's very outspoken on the issue. Um, he's no longer with our California Fish and Game Commission, but he was recently featured in an article by Todd Wilkinson, who some of your listeners may be familiar with, um, mm -hmm. excellent writer of uh, many books, and um, now has a online journal called uh, Mountain Journal. And Todd just did a feature on um, this issue and also the cruelty in general perpetrated against coyotes in particular. And Mike Sutton was very outspoken there, talking about the fact that killing contests are really an affront to <clears throat> ethical hunters like um, like him, um, and really uh, give hunting a bad name. Um, so, getting back to your question about killing games, this is <clears throat> Mike Sutton's also in our film, being the leader of our champion effort in California. And like I said, our hope is really that with this film we will raise public awareness and also inspire action because we very much talk about how this practice is going on across the country. Um, it is legal in every state now with the exception of uh, California and Vermont. And I'm pleased to share that Vermont uh, in 2018, earlier this year, also passed a ban on coyote killing contests. And now we have several states that are looking at um, enacting legislation. I see you out there doing stuff all the time. I mean, like other people who are promoting, you know, something or they're having a screening of killing games, but just talking to you right now, I can, I'm, I'm probably having a little bit of the effect and I'm kind of on the inside. Right. But I'm still having the effect that I think you're describing at these, at these meetings where you're doing the screenings and that I'm, st I'm just in the back of my mind, taking this little inventory of all the times I bring up wolves all the times I bring up, you know, like when I'm passing things on on Twitter, things, it's really disproportionate. It really is. And it, it took just talking to you to really have that hit home. And if that's happening with those of us in the conservation community, I can only imagine what a mm -hmm. shock this really comes as for people who, you know, had all their bases covered because a lot of the groups also go out with um, the charismatic megafauna and they say, you know, here's a polar bear, here's a wolf, here's an orangutan. Everybody's got a basic grasp of at least that. But there is a really big zone of, I don't know, lost creatures <laughs> that don't have any standing. Like you said, it really makes me uh, glad that you exist. Very, very glad that you're out there speaking for uh, for these critters that really don't have any standing when you sit and really think about it, that is scary. And no wonder then that these guys can just be out there not only shooting them, but accidentally shooting other wildlife and even people. Right. And that, and, and you have touched on the issue that really is, you know, our raison d'etre as an organization is, is that these animals have no voice and they don't have standing. And, um, they have been persecuted since really, you know, colonists stepped foot on this continent. They viewed the large carnivores as a threat to agriculture and as a threat to the game species that humans were hunting for food. And that, um, that prejudice against predators persists to this day. And that's really what we're up against. And, and as you mentioned, you know, many people are aware of the plight of elephants, of the plight of polar bears. They've heard it. They've seen it in the news. They might support an organization that's doing some some work on that. 
but they're largely unaware of the plight of our own native carnivores in this, this country and the fact that in many, many states, they can be hunted and trapped year round in unlimited numbers. And, and many people from our experience are shocked to learn that there, many of them are trapped for the commercial and recreational fur trade. So we are, we are very much up against a lack of public awareness. And hence, one of the reasons why Project Coyote believes very strongly in the power of film is that film can really help to raise, um, to raise this public awareness. And then secondly, the aims of our films are also to inspire action and to show people that every person has a voice. Um, and that's what we saw so incredibly powerfully here in California. And then also with the effort in Vermont that I mentioned led to ultimately a bill being passed to ban coyote killing contests. Prior to that in Vermont, there was a rule put forth by the uh, Vermont um, Fish and Game Commission, or actually, let me say, um, in New Hampshire next door, because um, there's a lot of parallels between what's happening in both of those states against predators. In New Hampshire, there was an effort to open up bobcat trapping, baiting, and hounding. And bobcats have been protected in New Hampshire since 1989. And what this did was really catalyze a whole New England-wide effort to uh, not only stop that rule successfully, so bobcats are still protected from those practices now in New Hampshire, thankfully, but it also catalyzed and opened Pandora's box in terms of how predators are being persecuted throughout New England. I'm talking New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine, Massachusetts, and the fact that these killing contests and trapping of so many of these um, important predator species is still persisting. And then that's what ultimately led to this grassroots effort in Vermont to ban coyote killing contests. I will also say that we have a representative who's in Vermont and New Hampshire, and there is now uh, a lot of grassroots momentum towards banning this practice in New Hampshire as well. So we will be showing our film again to raise the awareness in the state, um, and then hopefully catalyze another grassroots um, effort to ban the practice. That is awesome. You sound like you have a little, I mean, I know you deal with an awful lot of stuff on a regular basis and there's a lot of sad, awful stories going around, but there also seems to be a little bit of hope in your voice. You sound like, do do I sense that we are gaining some traction here? I I know you would probably like it to go faster, but is, is that the case? I am very... I, I'm very hopeful on this. And I'll, I'll just say that for me, what, you know, I'm often asked, how do you keep doing this day in and day out, Camilla? Like I've, I've been doing this my whole professional career. And my response is generally that I think each of us who are in the trenches in this work, we have to find our ways of how we um, rejuvenate our souls because so much of this work is hard um, and very challenging to see the, 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 the most ugly of human unkind. But I see the humankind, too, the kindness, the compassion, the empathy, the energy, and the grassroots momentum is really what keeps me motivated. Because when, I, when we have led these efforts in places like California and elsewhere, and we've seen individuals get involved, and we've seen through our Keeping It Wild Youth and Education Outreach Program, young kids getting involved in conservation and coming to these Fish and Game Commission meetings and coming before the legislature and saying, I want to grow up and be able to see a bobcat, a wolf in California. I don't want them killed indiscriminately through killing contests and trapping. That is so powerful and so inspirational. And it's working with those youth and it's working with those educators and those people who come to us and say, I want to volunteer for Project Coyote. 
I will share, we have more people now who want to volunteer with us than we can actually harness. I'm hoping we can increase our staffing so that we can harness all that, that energy out there. We have currently more than 60 people who are part of our team across the country, and many of them are volunteers, and many of them come to us with um, <clears throat> just energy and passion, and we figure out what their skill set is and how we can harness and channel that um, to, you know, to meet our mission. And our mission is basically to promote uh, coexistence between people and wildlife through education, science, and advocacy. So everyone who comes our way who wants to get involved, um, we find a way to, to harness that. One of the things that um, I noticed in New Mexico, and we were doing the uh, wolf reintroduction work there, the pre-work to the reintroduction, which is lots and lots, way too many public hearings, was that a lot of people um, from our side really were not familiar with going to these things. And the guys in the room we're always shocked when we came in because they weren't used to seeing us. They have never seen a Birkenstock in their lives. And they, you know, <laughs> they were really shocked that this thing was picking up the kind of steam that it was. And that was telling to me because they are used to running the show. When it comes to getting outside city limits, when there are meetings, when there are things to do with land use and everything else, it was in the 90s in New Mexico, completely, almost completely dominated by uh, ranchers and people, stakeholders on the other side of this issue. Is that part of the involvement that you're looking to get people going on, like in their areas? Because, and is it still that way? Is it still really dominated by these guys? Because they, it feels like with Wildlife Services and the Diamond M Ranch um, in Washington, it feels like those guys can just pretty much call the helicopters in and start the shooting of wolves anytime they want. Are we getting more people to the right places, going to the right hearings on, on these things, like maybe something that might have occurred in, in Vermont during that campaign? Your, your point with regard to um, the basically consumptive use dominated state wildlife agencies. And when I say consumptive use, I'm talking people, generally the, the users who have um, hunted, trapped or fished wildlife and and. I'm not thrilled with that kind of term of consumptive versus non-consumptive use, but that's kind of the terminology that is out there. And in general, historically, consumptive users have dominated our state wildlife agencies. Historically, this goes way back to the early 1900s when you look at the formation of our state wildlife agencies. Um, many of them were formed uh, to actually stop the, um, the heavy exploitation of wildlife, um, including birds that were being slaughtered in mass numbers for the international feather trade, but also game species that were being just hammered across the continent. So state wildlife agencies formed to essentially promulgate regulations to um, limit and regulate uh, hunting, trapping, and fishing. And so historically, and to this day, the wildlife agencies have really viewed the consumptive um, users as their constituents, as their base, and also their, um, their funding sources, because many of the state wildlife agencies depend on the license sales for hunters, trappers, and anglers. And so what this has translated to over uh, the last almost two centuries is that the way that our state wildlife agencies are run is in a way that, that views wildlife as a resource for uh, consumptive users. And so, as you were mentioning, the voices of conservationists um, have really been absent from state wildlife agency governance. 
um, that's also reflected in who is uh, appointed to the commissions. Um, the commissions are the bodies that oversee these state wildlife agencies. Most of those commissions are appointed by the governor um, and they can shift with the next governor uh, in a significant way. And most of those appointments are not made with the wildlife in mind, even though the wild animals are ostensibly supposed to be stewarded by these agencies. Um, very often the, uh, the appointments are political appointments. And so very, very frequently we see that very few commissioners have any kind of um, background or knowledge of wildlife. That's not across the board, but that's um, what we see in a number of states, and uh, including New Mexico. And in some states, you have to hold a hunting or trapping license to actually be appointed to a commission. Again, reflecting that arcane way of viewing wildlife as something for us to consume. So um, we, Project Coyote, feels it's very important for, um, for those who enjoy wildlife uh, in ways that doesn't necessarily entail consumptive use. But also, we think it's important that you know, ethical hunters, ranchers get involved in this as well. And we actually have a number of predator-friendly ranchers who are involved with Project Coyote and speaking before commissions and legislatures, uh, whether it's in efforts to ban killing contests or to reform predator management. So, and actually, I will um, give a shout out to my colleagues at the Southwest Environmental Center. They organized um, a meeting this year around this very issue of uh, state wildlife agency governance that took place in Albuquerque, and um, it was very powerful, and it was what I hope is the beginning of a lot more strategizing across the nation of how we can reform our state wildlife agencies so that they're representing uh, a conservation-minded viewpoint um, and also representing non-game species. So I will say it's going to be a long haul, but we see progress on that in California. I'll mention that after we were successful in banning the killing contests in California, we then uh, worked with a whole coalition that successfully banned bobcat trapping, again, through that fish and game regulatory process. California became the first state to do that. No other state has banned bobcat trapping, and most people are shocked to learn that bobcats are still trapped for the commercial and recreational fur trade. Um, and as we pointed out in our campaign in California, Bobcat pelts right now are uh, pulling up to $1,000 um, on the international fur, fur market, largely going to China and other Asian countries for the fur trade. And I'll mention, too, that with that effort, we had many people testifying before the Fish and Game Commission across the state. And our commission was not used to so many of our voices coming before them um, because, as you mentioned, historically, it has been hunters and trappers who are speaking before them. So we see a lot of a lot of movement on this, and in California, uh, that then led to the appointment of a predator policy working group by the commission, and it was something that we had pressed for back in 2012, in pointing out the way that predators are being mismanaged in California, from killing contests to commercial and recreational trapping, to night hunting. We uh, appealed to the commission to say that what we really need to do is to review the state predator-related statutes, regulations, and policies, because not only do they not reflect current and best available science, but they also have been adopted over the course of 30 or 40 years. So there's a lot of inconsistency. And that is 
not unique to California. Most state wildlife agencies have similar issues of uh, a failure to reflect current and best science um, and also a failure to have consistency because of the fact that those regulations, policies, and statutes have been adopted over decades. So our commission appointed this committee. Project Coyote had a science advisory board who was appointed to that committee. And over the course of 18 months, that uh, committee worked on a predator policy, and, and that has since been adopted by our commission. And I think it's the only policy in the country that actually recognizes the intrinsic value, the, the intrinsic and ecological value of predators. And we hope that it provides the basis for more uh, enlightened and ecologically and ethically minded regulatory reform over the, the years ahead. What, how do you want people to get involved? Well, there are several ways. And I think um, one way is to, um, to identify the conservation organizations in your state. Um, so, for example, uh, at this conference, um, Wildlife for All, there were a multitude of organizations represented. You know, we encourage people to, to get involved with a variety of different organizations. Most of us have e-teams, I will say. You know, going to our website, projectcody.org, there's a place where you can sign up for what we call our e-team and be alerted of different efforts on the predator reform front. People can see what programs we have on our homepage and see what appeals. Um, and then getting on our e, uh, email list, um, we will alert about different meetings and different efforts underway in different states. We have several that will be unfolding this next year across the nation with different members of our uh, National Coalition to End Wildlife Killing Contest, um, also working with a number of organizations to reform wildlife services. And we all have, uh, you know, email lists. Um, I would say that Project Coyote really works to try to harness um, volunteer uh, interest um, and try to uh, point people of, in different ways of how they can get involved. I'll also say that you know, there are some people who are very comfortable with going and testifying in front of a commission or a legislature. Other people would prefer to write letters. Other people would prefer to, to give their skills in, in other capacities. So, you know, we don't try to dictate of how people should, should use their energies and skills, but, you know, whether it's writing, whether it's showing up at a commission or legislative hearing um, or in some other fashion, we just encourage involvement. Just really trying to identify what are the groups um, that you resonate with and then reaching out to them to see, you know, what opportunities they have. Can you talk a little bit about non-lethal predator control and the really positive things that you've done with uh, stakeholders who were formerly lumped in with all the people who were just kill everything that's not a cow? You've had some really good, you've had some really good success with that. Yeah, and I will say that's that was another reason in forming Project Coyote was I felt like not only did we need an organization that would be a voice for the most persecuted native carnivores of North America, but also an organization that would provide concrete solutions for how we can better coexist uh, peacefully and safe, safely with these animals, both in urban areas and in rural areas. So we have two programs. One is called our Ranching with Wildlife program, and the other is called Coyote Friendly Communities Program. Uh, Ranching with Wildlife Program is oriented towards working with uh, ranchers and farmers in helping them to shift away from lethal control, which has been the standard um, uh, approach towards mitigating conflicts uh, between livestock and predators, 
um, and toward a uh, more holistic, sustainable, humane way of addressing conflicts. We touched on before just mentioning wildlife services, but for your listeners, wildlife services is the federal agency under the USDA that has historically addressed conflicts between wildlife and um, and livestock, particularly predators. And so this agency at taxpayer expense kills between two and four million animals every year. And of that, a little over 100,000 are native carnivores from coyotes to bobcats to mountain lions and wolves. And the agency um, has come under tremendous uh, criticism from scientists and conservation groups because of the fact that their approach highly relies on indiscriminate lethal tools, such as traps, aerial gunning, snares, poisons. And so what we try to do is to help communities shift away from that reliance on wildlife services and instead to adopt non-lethal programs. And so I'll just give an example. In Marin County, where Project Coyote is based, just north of San Francisco, we convinced our county to end its um, contract with this federal agency, USDA Wildlife Services, and to instead adopt a non-lethal program. And it's a cost share program that basically took the funds that were used to pay a federal trapper and instead helped ranchers uh, through a cost share program to adopt and implement non-lethal methods. Um, And this includes livestock guard animals, such as dogs and llamas, and uh, improved fencing, night corrals, um, and a variety of different non-lethal tools. So we we believe firmly that um, so much of human wildlife conflicts, whether in urban areas or rural areas, um, are really locally driven and must be addressed at a local level. And so through our Coyote Friendly Community Program, that is oriented more towards urban and suburban communities. And we assist cities and counties with adoption and implementation of non-lethal ways of uh, mitigating conflicts between people and uh, coyotes and other wildlife. So when we work, for example, we have um, a formal contract with the city of San Francisco, we assist them with their public education and outreach. Um, And usually those um, efforts involve a variety of different agencies that are first responders on human wildlife conflicts. And then often um, they also uh, include wildlife rehabilitation centers in the area. So we have a variety of ways of people getting involved with those programs. For example, with the Coyote Friendly Community Program, we have what are called Project Coyote Citizen Leaders. And these people help us with uh, doing outreach in hotspot communities with our uh, door hangers, our brochures, our fact sheets, our signage. Um, And usually we're doing that in collaboration with the different uh, agencies within that given region. So we have these all over the country. um, And if people are interested, they can check out these programs on our homepage. There's a top tab says programs. Under that, you can see the Ranching with Wildlife program and also the Coyote Friendly Community program. Now, just for fun, because this is always, I, I hear this in passing all the time, and today we're going to be a news organization, and we're going to get the bottom of this story. I understand guard dogs. I do not understand llamas. They are too cute. <laughs> How in the world does that just get thrown in, and then nobody ever explains it? I'm going to make you explain it today. <laughs> what the heck, llamas? 
Well, let me just share that I do presentations all over and I get this question invariably. So I have <laughs> at the end of my PowerPoint presentation, I have a fabulous little clip. And the clip is of a Montana rancher. She's on her horse. Um, <clears throat> she's out in the, in the pasture with her sheep. And there she has, she has a guard dog and she has a guard llama. And you actually, in this clip, it's remarkable. It's on the BBC. Um, you see a coyote coming into the flock and you see the llama uh, and what they do. And they basically, um, they have a, an aversion towards canids. And so you see the llama uh, running and charging the coyote. And they will literally um, bite at them. Uh, they'll kick. They'll spit. Um, and and you see the coyote exit exit the scene. So they they historically have been very powerful um, guard animals. And um, in South America, they use alpacas uh, for a similar kind of guard guard animal for sheep. Um, and so there's actually been controlled studies also showing how effective they can be. Well, I'm glad we got to the bottom of this once and for all. And probably <laughs> I'm the only one who needed to get to the bottom of it. But it is truly amazing to see them in action. And your listeners could probably Google BBC and llama and livestock guard animal and, and see that clip. It's, it's a fun little clip. I'm going there immediately after this. And I can see why now that you have a little bit of a volunteer problem, not the kind that most organizations do, but the kind that it makes it very difficult for you to wrangle everybody into the right places and everything, because you are an incredible ambassador for your organization. And um, I don't know why you have such a problem with sometimes having more volunteers than you can handle. Um, but you need more you. and you need the funding. Um, and I hope people listening um, understand that all of this works on donations, right? <laughs> and, uh, and grants and things like that and support from celebrities and everything else. It all goes together. It's not that you have a lack of work to do. It's not that you have a lack of, of ways for people to get involved. It's really just the organizational part of it for which you would need uh, like all organizations with a healthy volunteer program funding to do so. Please, everybody, do visit projectcoyote.org and find out all the different ways that we talked about today with Camilla to get involved. There seems to be something for everybody. Camilla, thank you so much. I want to talk to you again. So we just definitely have to have you back sometime in 2019, since you will be the last person in 2018 <laughs> to round out the Rewilding Earth podcast. Thanks again so much for your time. Thank you. I'd love to come back. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Be sure to visit rewilding.org to subscribe so you don't miss past and future episodes. And while you're there, please consider supporting Rewilding by making a donation or subscribing to the Rewilding Earth newsletter.